welcome to Subtext and Discourse, the podcast taking you behind the scenes of the art world with unique individuals involved in the field. I'm your host, Michael Dooney. Today, I'll be speaking with my good friend, lighting designer and artist, Kerem Asferalu. Among other things, we spoke about finding a balance between your career and artistic pursuits, recognising opportunities, taking risks, and the various challenges artists and other creative people often have to face. A brief reminder to subscribe to Subtext and Discourse on your favourite podcast platform to hear the latest episodes, but without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kerem Asferalu. It was interesting seeing how your title now is lighting designer and graphic artist. Is Correct, that the main yeah. part? Yeah, I think after I don't know how many years of being just a light and designer, pretty much you came to that revelation as well. Yeah. What a one-dimensional and unimaginative thing that can be. I think it's okay to name yourself what you feel yourself. So I feel like you were a graphic artist before anything else. And Correct. I yeah. think when I first went and visited you in Antakya or in Turkey, in Istanbul and in Antakya, I remember you had all your sketchbooks and all yeah. your drawings. And I remember as well growing up, drawing a lot and when you're I suppose six or seven you think I really love doing this yeah what can I do later in life and your parents say oh you know you can be an architect or (laughs) I was I ended up being a draftsman first before I went to anything else did you have that same thing with your parents as well it's like well you're really good at drawing well, you can't draw comics for a living. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> like that generation, the best will in the world, their major concern is don't fall into the pitfalls that we've fallen yeah. into. And they really worked hard to create a more constructive and more uh, recognized and respected deal out of your uh, interests. My mother particularly was like always tried to put me into maybe we could do design, maybe we could do architecture. But it was actually really my sister who actually came up with this thing. You know, there's actually people like you study design because I thought I was going to be unemployed or there was no hope for me because making it as an artist was such a tough Mm -hmm. thing at the time in Turkey when I was growing up. You know, you had to have endless will and resources to mm-hmm. pursue something yeah. like that. But that took me, like, you know, the, my mom's effort to create something really constructive out of it. Really, it puts your interest and skills to test. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not a bad thing that you look at it from a more viable way rather than... I suppose I never had a full artist in me. I think I was mm-hmm. always interested in an element of engineering and design to a certain degree. And I struggled to find a kind of striking balance between those. So like every progression path, it's never linear. So it was mm-hmm. a zigzag bouncing on left and right. Um, and I landed on now, like graphic artist and light and designer thing. Because as much as I try to marry those things up, mm-hmm. their DNA is different. And yeah. I'm okay with that. And I don't want to sacrifice and just call myself one thing. I can't think of anything that is more destructive than just saying, I'm just this. Yeah. I mean, we met studying light and design together. Yeah. Prior to that, you did interior design or you did interior architecture? I studied interior design in Turkey. It was fun and interesting, but I quickly understood that's not the thing that really described me. Mm -hmm. And when I was doing that, I really understood the power of lighting. I went to Germany and an Erasmus to a place called Hildesheim. I've seen lighting design department. That was very interesting. And that was my first, you know, trial with the German education system, which I liked a lot. I think it was like, you know, it really, you know, kicked me in the ass. But because... Turkish education system in terms of design was not very far away 
because after the Second World War, lots of uh, professors who fled Germany were mm-hmm. actually given positions in the Turkish universities. Oh, and really? they were the first people who laid down the foundations of the Bauhaus design education. Mm-hmm. And when Israel was established, so majority of these professors then moved on and left Turkey. So when I came to Germany, I, I was really surprised I didn't struggle with that design culture. I did actually find it a bit more interesting to adapt when I came to the UK because the design culture here was very different in comparison to Germany. The aesthetic, uh, the functionality, the understanding, appreciation of design quality, it's very different. There's something you can clearly say German design and there's the British design. Um, Oh, okay. And I think it was good to be able to tap onto both of these differences because, you know, it really adds value to your design understanding as well. And it kind of gives you more ways to justify your design. Yeah. Because you have a bit more control over the narrative as well or the representation. And also it it makes you a bit more aware of the general design culture. I think that's one of the beautiful advantages that we studied in Wismar because Mm -hmm. we were always very well aware of the international uh, design culture, Mm -hmm. people. But yeah, like, you know, likewise, I can also ask you the same question that you asked. Because when you came to Wismar as well, like, so lighting design was one of the things that you were interested in. Yeah. But then, like me, you also had lots of different skill set and interests. And I suppose, like me, you also struggled to actually put them all into one basket. And like us doing this interview is the greatest mm-hmm. manifestation of it's okay to be multiple things, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, for me, because I was doing electrical design or doing electrical engineering and the company I was at had multiple branches, security, it had fire, communications, Lighting was the one creative outlet. When I was working there, I was also doing music and playing in bands and doing promotion and other things outside of that. Yeah, fun kind stuff. Of, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but lighting was the one where you had, a, let's say, a degree of creative expression, which you didn't have the same way when it comes to laying cables and yeah. working out the path of least resistance for moving electricity around. So that was I suppose one of the reasons that I went to study lighting design because it's like, okay, now I need to specialize in something. But maybe also as well, finding out or realizing going through that specialization process that it's like, maybe that doesn't fit to me either. Because when you do have so many other interests and you draw inspiration from a lot of different sources, putting yourself just in that one box is also quite difficult. I mean, restrictions are good to some extent, but then at the same time, you're inherently limited because if you're only doing that one thing. Yeah. You can't do anything else. I got great respect for people who actually find their passion early doors and then fully capitalize and focus on it. I'd wish I was one of those people because there's always the sense, I suppose you also share it, but I never felt that I fully explored my true potential on one thing. Like, you know, the, the jack of all trades, master of none. But apparently that actually saying ends with still better than master of one. But nobody talks about that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know. I saw a presentation about that recently uh, saying it's important to try a lot of different things to know what you're good at but also i think having the different influences from multiple disciplines and multiple sources rather than just focusing on one thing the talk i saw was something to do with sport they were using tiger woods as an example just to say well he started golf as soon as he could walk and that's why he's really great at it but then they used Uh, Roger Federer is another example and said well he tried football and then he tried this and he was swimming and everything else now he's you know one of the greatest tennis players of all time but it took him a long time trying a lot of other things before he realized actually no this is the one thing that I really 
want to excel in? Yeah, I think it really comes down to the individual. Opportunities mean a lot as mm-hmm. well. It shapes you, become who you are. Um, and some of those you can actually seize and some of those you can't. But I think being aware of what sort of opportunities you might aim for is number one question. Mm-hmm. But I totally believe that the individual composition of a person's interest is like the number mm-hmm. one thing that you know makes you who you are. Probably we were a bit more omni-interested. People mm-hmm. had to deal with other stuff to actually find what's best for us. I can't really say that I'm still find the best thing. I don't feel like, you know, established or accomplished in it. But the fun part is I'm still in the search. So mm-hmm. I think it's the moment of death when you actually clearly know who you are and that's it. There are lots of really, really amazing people who actually knew what they're made for very early doors. But again, that sense of awareness was distilled in them. That mm-hmm. source of interest was already there. Yeah. So I think it really comes down to the individual. For example, I just met your uh, daughter. And, you know, you can observe some characteristics in a person. Often people talk about the nurture versus nature and stuff. Yeah. You can clearly see that there are some implanted qualities already there before you got involved, some of which you'll be able to influence and some of which you won't be. That I believe that there's a certain characteristics that are already that we bring in as soon as we're, we come to this planet. Yeah, definitely. I guess since being a parent and observing other children and then seeing them at such a young age and already witnessing their personalities and their characters come out, so much of that is already intrinsic. Like You can't enforce a lot of those things on such a small individual because yeah. they can't take on that information yet. Like They're already going to be a certain way. Like If they're they're already going to be curious or they're already going to be quiet or they're already going to be loud yeah. by their nature. And yeah. it's just whatever else around them happens. Like how you nurture that, I suppose, yeah. affects how they're going to be later on in life. Yeah. I think you've got a certain element of influence, but a majority of that will be definitely defined by the individual. By the way, for the people who are wondering what's happening outside, we're actually sitting in Hyde Park in London at the moment. And there's a serious bird population here, including parakeets. So what you were hearing was just basically basically us being terrorized by them hopefully they don't shit on us we're on the bench like you know underneath some trees but just giving you some context <laughs> um bringing it back to being a graphic artist and your path through visma to go to lighting because you didn't stay in germany to work you left germany to come to the uk briefly i actually worked in germany for a while and i really wasn't interested in leaving mm-hmm. like i i was thinking germany i could see myself living in there like by that point i've already changed one degree i've done my military service and etc mm-hmm. and stuff i was thinking like okay i just need to get my shit together and just basically do something masters was uh, you know a big decision that we ended up in wismar and again in terms of influences mm-hmm. i think one of the beautiful the most appreciated the qualities of Wismar in Germany where we studied there was actually meeting up with you guys. I never had such a, never met such a cool group of people and still like, you know, as we are meeting and like, you mm-hmm. know, still we're keeping those relationships. I didn't have that in my bachelor's or my previous education years. And by the time you come to that degree, I think master's was the only time that actually I took a clear decision about where I want to take my life. Before mm-hmm. that, uh, just drifting like a plastic, you know, uh, <laughs> bag in the wind and a bit more wealth than that. But, you know, and uh, actually really fed a lot from the interests and the culture of people that I met. And that also influenced me. I think, you know, I, I became a bit more internationally aware. Mm-hmm. To this day, I really feel like, you know, a person who's been living in London 
about 11 years or so. I still have a somewhat good international and global awareness through all these people I met and, you know, understanding, tapping onto the political situations and stuff. Made me a better individual, first thing. When I came to London, I, I, you know, there was one one practice that I really wanted to work for. And when they said, okay, we'll deal with your visa and stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, that was a big move because um, coming to UK is a bit challenging for... um, you know foreign people i'll have to say that like you know (laughs) even before brexit you know coming to this island has always been tough where germany i feel like europe or schengen countries are a bit more Mm -hmm. tolerant and interested in the foreign workforce but yeah like you know i worked for a practice for about seven eight years which contributed a lot to my vision and personality Mm -hmm. but sometimes i question did i stay too long because when you feel like you got some passion and other stuff and you mm-hmm. know, personal motives and ambition, it's always important to learn your art and working with the right people who can actually train you. But equally, if anybody is listening to this or interested in like, finding their path, just don't spend too much time. When you feel ready, just act on it. But before going that, I wanted to also ask you, because we were talking about um, being the master of lots of different trades you went through a quite different path than anybody else. You were lighting designer, then you moved on to having your art gallery. Mm-hmm. Now you're producing podcasts. You've always a person of various interests that was impossible to combine under one title. Yeah. Did you feel like you're content with the way that things turn out or it could have worked differently? I think yes. Before Chris and I left to come and meet up with you, we were saying how we've had, let's say, similar journeys to get to the point that we want to be at. Obviously, it was difficult going through a lot of things and even getting to the different points where you do question, do I want to stay in the position that I'm in or make a change to do something different? I think also just starting again is really hard. For me, I guess going from doing drafting, electrical consulting, then specializing in lighting, that was sort of like a 10-year, 15-year journey to think, okay, well, this is what I want to work towards. And then when you get to that point and then realize maybe this isn't really what I want to keep doing. Like, yeah. that's really hard then just to yeah. abandon that and to let that go. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's from a really privileged position. It's like, yes, it was a struggle to get to that point, but even to be in the position where you can afford to quit and to try something different and to make a move, that's not something that a lot of people have the yeah. chance or the opportunity to do. Yeah. I mean, the transition over the previous 10 years, going from lighting to running the gallery, being more involved with the art world, having a podcast parallel, the kind of independent freelance life, you kind of forget the full-time life at a company, the stability and everything else, the paycheck and all of those things, they come at the cost of your independence and freedom to decide things for yourself. And it's a trade-off between what's more important to me and what decisions am I able to make? Because even now thinking about having a child, I'm responsible now for another human yeah. and it's not the same as I can just stay out all night and pass <laughs> out somewhere because somebody else needs you to live. <laughs> but you also seem like you were very, very well prepared and equipped for that moment and I'm glad you've made the decisions you've mm-hmm. made at the time and like if you were content and stayed in Australia, who would have, uh, you know, guessed well, what your life any, would have been? Exactly. Yeah. I wouldn't have met any of you guys and yeah. I wouldn't have had as, let's say, as rich a life experience. Yes. But that has also had its risks. I've not had anything to fall back on. Like as we were saying about those individuals who actually find their passion early doors and 
don't get me wrong, shitloads of them actually fail. We don't mm -hmm. hear of those people. Uh, we only know the people who made it. Like, you mm -hmm. know, how many people needs to fail for an Eddie Murphy at 17, 18 to be successful? Yeah. You see what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, because they are not in your radar. Similarly, I have great respect for people who actually know themselves early and all they want is a nine to five job just to stabilize life. I have no criticism. I actually have great respect for people who know themselves very much. But again, had you not actually tried it, I think there is always going to be something at the back of your mind. Because I think at this age now, like me leading up to my 40s and mm -hmm. now your early 40s, and I think you really appreciate that you've done these things while you could and you have no regrets because had you not done those, you probably wouldn't be the same individual that you are today. And that's the only unique quality you have about your life that you, mm -hmm. you actually experienced all these things because there's a time to do those and there's a time to be a father or a mother or mm -hmm. a, you know or a boss that's the interesting part yeah definitely bringing it back though to yeah we've we completely we got, got we derailed went on a big tangent <laughs> then bringing it back then to before yeah. you went independent you still found time somehow to keep your let's say your artistic practice going i think that eventually allowed you to step away from the company you were at yeah and i don't know if flourish is the right word if you're at that point yet well but. not yet but yeah hopefully one day it will flourish but yeah you're right being able to exercise and practice some of your creative outlet while you were doing something completely different on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis and i think it was necessary to keep yourself sane but also that stability i think as well you need sometimes it's difficult i think for artists to say i've got my nine to five and i hate having to do that i should just be able to survive from my art yeah i loved my job and also then this puts another pressure if you want to explore your artistic potential and do other things on the side mm -hmm. then you'll have to create time for that and so I pretty much like work over the weekends and the evenings mm -hmm. on the weekdays and stuff. So I never minded that. As long as something stimulates me, I really don't mind the amount of time that I give to it. Well, I'm a bit better now uh, since I'm married because my wife actually like she's quite outdoorsy and she's very keen when there's sun out there, like take my ass out there. Otherwise, if you leave me, mm -hmm. I'll keep myself busy and entertained with stuff. But equally... My day-to-day -day job was actually quite stimulating and interesting. Mm -hmm. So we did projects that you would work on and we, we were on a very, yeah, you we were going to say something. <laughs> I was going to say, but then how did you maintain that creative energy afterwards? Because if I think about myself, when I was drafting, so when I was using CAD and producing drawings, it was easy to kind of switch to like manual labor mode and then save my creative output for later. Yeah. Whereas when I switched to doing project management or doing design, you're using up a lot of your creative energy because it's cognitively demanding. Yeah. And then when you have time on the weekend or you have time away from that, it's hard to kind of keep that drive going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally get what you're saying. I think the, the design work that I was doing, I had a very well-established team. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we had a very clear pattern on how we tackled the projects. And it was a very collaborative environment. As much as you're responsible, very responsible for your job and mm -hmm. projects, the projects that you're managing. At the end of the day, you weren't alone. And I think that's one of the worst things can happen to a designer. And sometimes the great opportunities you get, you go on to a place and they just throw work at you and just like yeah. figure it out like <laughs> that could be very rewarding but you know if it's not the right culture and context that might be very destructive for you as well because mm -hmm. as a junior designer you will need some level of guidance to understand what's the best way to take and i think you would want to learn from the experiences of the others particularly this is why i think covid was a very terrible time for junior designers going into the workforces mm -hmm. because 
you know, not experience that ambiance and environment that you really don't understand how much you're missing out in terms of every little conversation you're hearing, learning. One of the things that I loved about, like, you know, you just go to work. You used to learn about the best film to see, the best theater to go, the best exhibition in the town. That's mm-hmm. only like, you know, the morning coffee chat that you're having. Yeah. And the thing is, people not often appreciate is once you actually established and learn your art and how you do it, you know, you learned your profession well, it was very intre- easy for you to then transition to working remotely. But mm-hmm. imagine that immediately the first structure that you go into working remotely, I think it was a bit difficult for the younger workforce. Again, I got a bit like derailed. Going back to the art element. So mm-hmm. doing that in the daytime is obviously it's a complete different stimuli. But art, so what I used to do, by the way, maybe we should give a bit more clarity to people. So I uh, um, started this comic project called Dark Source. Mm -hmm. I believe light is a composition of brightness and darkness. And one of those qualities overcome one another. You can't experience anything. So I wanted to explore our connection with light from a darker perspective. So it had a bit of a darker tone, like Mm -hmm. Black Mirror, the Twilight Zone, which had a big influence over me. Mm -hmm. So the arts project became a very, very important part of that meditation Mm -hmm. that, like, as you said, you know, you left your drafts and work and switch off to something else. You need to change the settings every now and then. And Mm you can't keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I think it might get tedious and blinding after a while and also exhausting. Yeah. So it was very important to switch off to some different task, doing completely different stuff because the comics or the graphic art has a complete different way of narrative, storytelling, communication, interaction, engagement. Design to me is very well defined. You need to know how you're going to channel or create the image in a person's mind. It's about conveying what they're getting in a very clear terms art is a bit more fluid mm-hmm. you know it's about what the viewer wants to take or what they will take from it so it's not great to be very prescriptive i suppose yeah because they were published in a magazine every month weren't they yeah every two months they were released in a magazine and i've done that for about six seven years that happens to be the lucky number i don't know like seven yeah. years they say like you know every cell in your body is completely replenished rejuvenated so i don't wonder if like you know have a complete different change of course of action but it was a long dedication it was it was fun mm-hmm. i was surprised the magazine wanted to even feature stories of this kind mm-hmm. you know but they saw the merit in it and sometimes you need the platform to be on board with that kind of thing it's mm-hmm. everything you do design art it's a collaboration like you know these guys giving you the chances also like you know and also not censoring you or like you know yeah giving you full freedom and being supportive really was actually a really great journey and that allowed me to put all these concepts out there and test how people are responding Mm -hmm. and i thought like you know it's not always fun and games you know sometimes you find yourself oh i got a deadline i haven't even thought of that but that push that kick in the ass yeah has always been so important to me actually get things done Mm -hmm. and i still struggle when i work on jobs where they give you free reign and like you know there's no deadline don't tell this to me give me a deadline man like you're that's (laughs) worse for me (laughs) But it's interesting, I think, how the graphic stories opened up so many other new opportunities for you, which I don't know if you would have expected them. Because even when I was looking at what else you did since then, outside of being a lighting designer, that has opened up a whole new realm of being almost like an activist for darkness and Uh, working with different communities. Yeah, very true. And I think exploring a theme or also doing something new, it kind of pushes you to 
you know, once you break that taboo, it becomes very easy to keep doing. For example, COVID made us all, I felt very anxious going out to the city center or taking the tube or like, you mm-hmm. know, the train somewhere. But once you do that, like once and just like, you quickly go back to the way things are like, you know, it just basically reassures it's okay. And that, therefore, that arts project was very important to sometimes make a statement and see mm-hmm. how people respond to it. And that kind of build up a level of confidence talking about what you want to talk about and exploring the theme of darkness in several stories in different artistic styles made me always curious about what about if I do this and what about if I do that and started, you know, paving the road towards the practice that I would like to have in the future. Mm-hmm. Like the comics, now my lighting design practice, which is more focused on environmentally friendly lighting or dark skies lighting. Uh, it's actually really focused on environmental and social aspect rather than visual aspect. Because mm-hmm. I think like moths, we've been obsessed with the visual quite a bit and we kind of forgot what else design or lighting actually should represent, you know, design for the community, design for the environment. Was that maybe one of the main catalysts for you to think i'll now decide to go out on my own was it this sort of shift towards the more social engagement environmental projects even working with different communities yeah yeah i think there's a certain element of there's definitely exploring themes allowed me to sculpt this path Mm -hmm. but equally also i have to be honest i always at one point wanted to do my thing. I didn't know what that thing is. I still don't know. I can't really define it in a very simplistic term because I feel like it's always in the flux. It's always ever-changing. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, it was not always like, you know, smooth sailing. There's been times where my artistic ambitions came into a level that I actually started getting some recognition. There was the times that I had to have a difficult conversation with my bosses because they were like questioning about my integrity and loyalty. Yeah. And, you know, at one point, one of my bosses also said like, I totally think that one day you'll be doing your own thing. That's one of the greatest compliments and greatest concerns you can hear from yeah. your boss because this means sooner or later you're going to leave us. Um, but the thing is, you have to also appreciate if you have any doubt in yourself in terms of like, you know, as we were saying, had I done this, what would have happened? I always knew at one point I was going to do something. Mm-hmm. And had the system that I was a part of could facilitate that, I would have definitely considered actually exploring that path. But having done it, I have no regrets in the sense of, I don't think I've fully explored my potential and found the perfect condition and the path for myself. But I'm glad that actually putting myself outside of the uh, safety zone mm-hmm. is again, is so important. As you were saying, like, you know, you can only do it at certain times and, you know, there's a certain bracket and soon enough, there'll be a moment where other responsibilities will be at risk. So you can't really do it. So doing it at a time where you still have a bit of passion for it, a bit more youth that enables you to like, you know, uh, dedicate yourself was very important. But yeah, it wasn't a, a, a smooth sailing linear path of progression and everything worked out that way. Um, it's a bit of a challenge. When you want to change things, like you can't cure cancer with wishful thinking. You have to have a drastic action. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I equally feel that you've done that multiple times. And this is why I have great respect for what you've done. And you've done it in a quicker term. Like, you know, you haven't spent like, you know, I don't know, seven, eight years wishing like, maybe this works. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> like, you know, you were way more sensible and you basically... I don't know if sensible is a word. Other people could say more reckless by just deciding, I'm going to do this now. No, nah, you're not a reckless guy. <laughs> you, were, you, were, you were very uh, clever about it, I think. 
Oh, thanks for that. No, I appreciate I mean, it. Like- Let me think then. So you've gone from doing graphic art to now establishing your own design office. Yeah. Doing the artwork. I think that had a pivotal role in your kind of evolution as a sole practitioner, really. Like, had you not done that, you maybe didn't have the same doors of opportunity open. Yeah, very true. I think what Dark Source stood for was always uh, being inquisitive, be a thinker, be investigative, be a philosopher, like not visually, also mentally intriguing, like, you know, find concepts that are curious and interesting to people. Exploring those themes really gets your Mm -hmm. brain going and you start questioning your own existence and ambitions um, as much as the stories you're exploring. That's why, like, you know, I appreciate people who do other stuff, keep researching and stuff. Eventually, that research will get to you. Like, you know, it will change who you are. It's not about a practical task that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. When I was at my practice, I worked on really, really high caliber, high end, you know, interesting projects, big, small, national, international. Being able to tap onto those things was great. But, um, Outside, I was also always curious about the community work as well. So I was volunteering at a community center that was focused on mentoring young people, mostly teenagers, at critical time at their lives around 13, 14-year-old, and Mm -hmm. mostly focused on on an ethnically diverse community, which still to this day I live in a kind of context that is like, you know, uh, quite culturally diverse Mm -hmm. uh, in North London. And those experiences really shaped me. These people that I been privileged to mentor and like this community center that I used to the people who were there the, the people that I've been lucky to be influenced by completely changed my um, personality as well and that again was a very interesting experience besides the art and design who I am as an individual when you put yourself out there you're open to interactions and influences and these people these kids that I was meant to mentor uh, turned back and started like you know influencing me in return mm-hmm. Which led to a project in Africa because the community center also encouraged people to come up with their own uh, little projects, social impact projects and deliver it. You know, they support and empower you to do it. And as soon as I left my practice, I was in a bit of an existential situation like, what am I going to do? Like, you know, yeah. Am I going to do like, you know, a game up to that level of I'm just going to do high end stuff? Like, you know, I'm Mr. Nobody. Like, even if I was, I was just an employee, um, even if I was managing projects and stuff. And also as an immigrant is a completely mm-hmm. different game. Yeah. And when I went to Gambia with the help of this community center, we worked together and did a project called The Vessel. And we trained about 40 local electricians about solar lighting. And then work together to install that at a 24-7 accessible community library because kids have no place to study there. Like, you know, when they're living with their families, people live in bigger families and compounds. They have family tasks. Mm -hmm. There's no time for studying, really. Like, you know, you have uh, responsibilities. This place was established by a young gentleman who was a member of the community. And, you know, he was looking for the funding, you know, getting the books. And the the community center was also helping him, you know, sending him stuff that he needs from London. It was a very, very um, heartwarming and very strong, like, collaborative work to transform the circumstances of a community. Really, you know, changed my thinking. I was really impressed by, like, the small project that was maybe the funds that we raised was about like 1,300 pounds for covering everything, including oh, so, the travel. That yeah. was it. Wow. And the amount of lives has changed and touched. It was amazing working with these electricians. They were so sharp, so on the ball. 
again, coming back to the opportunities, nobody ever came to them with this thing called lighting design. Suddenly they're, oh, I could do that. Like, you know, I can brand it this way. And like, you know, you're giving them ideas. And then they started influencing me in many ways and seeing like, you know, how I could actually work with the community in, in this way. Because as much as you'd wish all the charities, like for example, charity businesses is a big, big business in the mm-hmm. UK. You'd wish that everybody works in that way in this grassroots. You go to the community and like work with them. I don't think really anybody does it in that manner. And that work was so influential in the sense of as soon as we've installed the lighting and we've changed the whole experience of that place and completely eliminated all the running costs the transition was as quick as just like you know switching the light switch that immediately they were working and like you know and we realized that on the last night when we were doing some photography just basically the project to finish the kids didn't even notice obviously they see that it's much more uh, well-lit environment and stuff it's looking nice ambiance to be in and we stepped out and realized the power had gone out in town oh really and they did not even notice and that was to me this is how quickly design changed lives and of all these years I've been a designer I've never got a sharper and greater lesson ever in my life and that completely transformed me not only that i would actually uphold you know the well-being of the environment in my own job promoting the importance of darkness not for only for us for the well-being of the planet biodiversity etc communities well-being will be very very important to me as well so the dna of that change and shift happened there to me but i was going to ask you um your experience as an immigrant in Germany. And like, you know, for all these things, we have to give some context to people because we're internationals at the end of the day. And I think that's a massive part of this journey as well. And I was always curious because Germany is not known to be one of the easiest places to make it. (laughs) (laughs) Yet you never surrendered. (laughs) How do you mean in the sense of like establishing yourself in a yeah, place or working like or... You, you staying in Perth or like, you know, in Australia someplace doing all this stuff, like for example, and if you wanted to, mm-hmm. I imagine it would be different circumstances and opportunities because it takes a certain dedication to do it at a place where you are not from. Absolutely. Yeah. I would say it's inherently more difficult, but I think there's also looking at this in a half glass full kind of way. Sometimes things that wouldn't ordinarily be disadvantages can sometimes give you an edge. Maybe when I was working in offices and doing lighting and things like that, because it's more of a a more conservative environment, it's maybe a bit more difficult. But I think within the art world and in the kind of more freelance context, being the Australian guy that speaks German is a bit of a novelty for people. (laughs) I can't imagine that, yeah. (laughs) And definitely with having the gallery then, because it is quite, cosmopolitan anyway it is a very sort of an international environment and people want unique things and it's like oh do you know michael he's from australia he lives in berlin and he's doing whatever else that he's doing and you're like that's an individual person that stands out from all of the other people he's not like oh one of the other berlin galleries that's german yeah like you have that um, bird with the colorful feathers it's a different bird (laughs) i think it is yeah Yeah. and i think like that's in many respects can make it more difficult because like oh i'm being treated differently or i'm looked at differently or i'm not taken as seriously because i'm a foreigner or because my german isn't quite as good or because i'm from somewhere else or i don't have whatever pedigree from my school and everything but it's i think a lot of the time you're how you carry yourself with that, mm, I yeah. think, also has an impact with it. 
I mean, I'm trying to think of other examples. But surely it must have also produced, as much as it produced this opportunity, it must have also caused lots of challenges at the same time as well. Yeah, definitely. I think bureaucratically, it causes lots of challenges when you need to do anything. And I think for a long time, maybe I was in the kind of advantageous position of having a British passport. So Mm -hmm. I was, in inverted quotes, European. Mm -hmm. And that gave me a lot of kind of freedom to move around and... Like my wife's just a, like she's just Australian. Like <laughs> just she's she, <laughs> one of the commoners. <laughs> yeah, she only has a single nationality. Yeah, and yeah, obviously there's a lot more paperwork and a lot of things to go through. And you would have experienced that coming to the UK. Oh man, it was it's, tough. Yeah, you know, you got to kind of prove that you're allowed to be here and why you're here and how long are you going to stay for? Absolutely. And like moment of truth, maybe I would not have stayed in my previous job that long. Um, mm-hmm. Although I was really content and happy. Now I'm a dual citizen, but it was very, very tricky for me to let my job go. You know, you have to have justification. It's not that easy. It's very complicated and you might lose your work permit. Yeah. And I think that also has a big impact on your ability to take risks. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about it before the different decisions I've made up until this point and even thinking for you leaving your previous job, going solo not just the financial constraints, but also the paperwork involved with being yeah. a solo practitioner and just doing whatever you want to do, making your own decisions and being in control of your life. Like that's not something that's afforded to most people. And even when you've reached the point where you can do that, it's still a risk. Like, you, yeah. you know, it's like, okay, I'll try this out and see if it works. And if it doesn't work, you're like, okay, now what? Now I have to go back and find another place that will yeah. take me in and help me because now I don't have that safety net that I've built for myself. Yeah, absolutely. Or even that the safety net I have built, it's not that secure. Like it's kind of okay, but I have to be really, really careful still because yeah. if I fall too hard, I'll go straight through it. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, all the times that I actually met you guys in Germany or wherever, like, you know, wherever we had the chance to have a group gathering, that was mostly done on three months or six months long uh, Schengen visas that I had to always go to a consulate and apply. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, now I'm looking back. It's just basically that's crazy amount of work. And like, you don't even make much of it. But I suppose in contrast to you, me being a, an immigrant or a foreigner mm-hmm. never have fully left me and still as a part of who I am. And I, I totally am with you in this sense of, you know, that having that confidence of certain persona, how you carry yourself is mm-hmm. a very, it's not only for us, for any business yes, or anybody. any person. Absolutely. It's, it's a very important part of who you are. And uh, also, like, you know, a very good friend of mine once actually advised a cheesy phrase, but she said it in a way that really resonated with me. Fake it till you make it. Like, you know, it's very important part as as much as, you know, who you are, who's rising up to the challenge, but also to inspire trust. Sometimes you need to basically go above and beyond. You have to be a bit ruthless and you can't always offer who you are just to people on the plate because often people want, a level of additional ambition and layer and like they want to see a person who gives that narrative to them and say like this guy's got it yeah but i think as well on the because i've kind of changed my perception of the fake it till you make it just recently because a lot of people think you have like by faking it until you make it you're being inauthentic and you're not being yourself to try to get to somewhere that you want to be but i think as well a lot of it is about our mindset and what we project and Let's say if you're not an outgoing person, if you fake that you're an outgoing person Ah, and you pretend that I'll try to be more outgoing and I'll do this. But after a while, even though you're faking it, 
eventually that will become second nature to you and then you'll go from being a more reserved person to being a more outgoing person. Yeah. And then you've essentially faked being outgoing. A hundred percent. That happened as well. Like when you do that, so obviously my version of fake it till you make it is so conservative. Actually, (laughs) like, you know, like, I mean, if you're another tea with milk person, you say to once, like, it's just like that, that kind of very, very low scale. But I found there's a certain element of you have to condition your um, goals and aims to a certain way to bend it into Mm -hmm. that direction. Uh, You have to, as we were saying, you have to take an action towards some path, right? And sometimes you condition yourself to do something. That's also like, you know, you're actually visualizing, you're channeling your mind to something. And then soon enough, you might actually find, I don't know, some time down the line. Oh, I was totally not that person. It's just basically that element of active will and pushing it to a certain way, maybe bending it like rather than completely faking it. Mm -hmm. Then you do become that person that you promised because you've learned to deal with that situation. I think it's about being true to yourself and true to the people that you're, you know, working with that you deliver what you've promised is a very, very important part of that. Absolutely. And I think that's what can be confusing with the fake it till you make it for some people is just... You're not faking who you are intrinsically if you're taking on a project or if you're doing something that you maybe you're not sure you'll be able to do and you say, yeah, I can do that. And then you find a way that you can make sure that that happens. So you're kind of overreaching, but that you can maybe enable more opportunities or you can start to forge out the path that you want, I guess, sort of chipping away at the things that you need to get to that position. Yeah, yeah. And I think you have to do it in a certain way to level up. If you can't find your personal limit, mm-hmm. then this means you got still like, you know, a way to go and the glass ceiling is not there. Um, and I think you have to always push yourself to offer a little bit more because I think like, you know, I think there will be a moment I think I will plateau. I'm not there yet because I haven't found my um, comfortable space yet. Mm-hmm. But there might be a challenging position where you come to, I don't know, you're looking after, I don't know, four, four or five people's well-being, or like, you know, uh, not only your family, maybe employees and, and their well-being and, you know, you need to have a certain income, etc. and stuff. I think there will be a moment where you'll have to reduce the risks that you're taking. Yeah, definitely. And the jobs you are doing will define who you are. And if you keep doing the same stuff and stay in your comfortable place, you'll be only that thing. And you won't have any other potential branching to other parallel paths. And we're enjoying the sense of like, you know, still it's not fully settled. It's not set in stone. You can explore and play. But even having that is an opportunity because there will be a moment where you'll have to really like heavily capitalize on who you are and what your product is, I suppose. Like, you know, and you'll have to be fierce. And like, I've seen it with other people who actually got really good at what they do and mm-hmm. they get recognized. And, you know, it's artists, designers and stuff. People go to ask them for that thing. Yes. They don't want anything else. I just, I saw that you can do it. I want that. And that person will also become very fierce about people copying their work because if the clients are interested, if new people are coming to you, this means other creators who don't clearly know what action path they would like to, they will see and your product works and what you do work. And they'll basically then start imitating you. This is how designers and artists influence each other. And 
it's fair to say, like, you know, everybody does that. Obviously, how, you know, they'll implement it with their DNA or will be just like, you know, straightforward copying your persona or work. You never know. You're always open to risk. So I think it makes you at a certain, I don't know, maybe we hit 50. We'll be like, you know, these grumpy people, like, you know, very protective of who you are, what you are. You never know. I feel like for me, though, a lot of the time, and I think I feel the same with other people and I see them being really protective about their ideas. Your ideas should, in a way, be limitless. And if you're just being really protective of like a few things that you've got, because obviously a lot of people just steal ideas from other people. And if all of those sources dry up, then you're like, okay, now I've got none of my own ideas. What am I going to do? And all you can do is regurgitate other people's ideas. And I think if you're less protective over certain things like that, it's like, well, okay, yes, you took that idea of mine, but I have more ideas. I have other things. And I'm not restricted by just this one thing. Honestly, 100%. And you know what? Oh, well, there's a big trucks passing, uh, <laughs> folks. Uh, we'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. To that point, I mean, it's a bit of a side point, but like on the tube before, I saw the posters up for the reissue of Kid A and Amnesiac, or Kid Amnesiac, whatever they're calling it, for the Radiohead reissue. Oh, yeah. And about how that pivot that they made from OK Computer to Kid A yeah. is one of like the I don't know, the greatest pivots, but they're just saying like in terms of the position that they were at, at their careers, they could have just made a few more okay computers. Yeah, true, very true. It's it's a great band always reinvented itself. But to make that decision to think, yeah. well, no, we want to keep evolving as artists. We yeah. want to keep trying new things. We just don't want to be put in this box of, yeah. oh, well, I'll go to you guys for this kind of music. That's, the, I think, the dilemma of the, the great artists who can actually still challenge themselves at every point. Like, neither of us in that caliber yet no, in life. Not. They, but we're I think far away a, from that. I but. think but still at a, at a smaller level, yes. you think, well, maybe I can try this, maybe I can try that. Not only that, but following what you think people want or following what people have already said that they like. And when you were yeah. saying before, if you're a designer that you or an artist or whatever kind of person that's producing any kind of output, like other people will copy that because they're like, oh wow that's resonating that's really good I'm going to do exactly what they're yeah. doing because then that will work yeah. for me that's the um, one of the biggest dangers of the growing you know social media has been amazing and everything but like you know when you think about it you have a very clear idea about which demographic you reach to how frequently they listen to what or what their likes and dislikes might be the algorithms are so smart to make assumptions about you know what your life might be now you have a young father you'll get like you know (laughs) nappy ads and stuff like that and it might be just not because the you know your phone is listening to it's just basically can establish a clear pattern because we're very predictable creatures at the end of the day but yeah you're right if you're actually defined by your current likes Mm-hmm. How are you going to be infected by the new stuff, and how, or how the the artists or the musicians and like you know will look into things? And but to be honest, commercial success is a very important part of this business. So you know, for people investing your lots of money in your business and art, they will want to know they'll be safe while you're taking risks. Well, they want to return on their investment. Yeah. It's a, we're in a very, very interesting point in time now. Like, do we get defined by what people want and crave? Do we take enough risks to uh, find out what the next thing might be? Because sometimes mistakes are great because you actually learned what you don't want to do and what people don't respond to. Or you might just feel like, you know, I'm glad that I've done it because it means a lot to me and I don't give a shit about what others... Because if you constantly care about what people think, that would take you in a darker path, I think. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kadem Esferalu. I know this was different from the usual art world, art market focused interviews I've done in the past. 
That being said, I hope there were some interesting takeaways for artists and all creative people who do wonder how to find a balance between the idealised path and the reality most of us have to navigate. If you'd like to learn more about Kadem's work, you can find links to his website and social media in the show notes. And as always, I invite comments, questions and feedback to both this and previous episodes of the show. That's all for now. Please be sure to follow, subscribe or even leave a review of the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Michael Dooney and you've been listening to Subtext and Discourse.